Thank you. We turn to a, a passage that includes a very famous saying that you would recognize. Psalm 118. Psalm 118. Maybe that rings a bell. You probably made this statement many times. Psalm 118. Just going to read a portion beginning at verse 22. Psalm 118, 22. The stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Do you recognize the next verse? Altogether, this is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee, send now prosperity. Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. Again, may the Lord bless the reading of his word to our hearts. Did you know that the resurrection was planned for centuries? Today is Easter Sunday, but for most of the world, there's no spiritual meaning or message. Does resurrection ring a bell? Think about the thousands of years that Bodiless believers in heaven were waiting just for the Son of God to become man. And the time came that he was born of a virgin. And everybody knew it in heaven. David was there. Esther. Thousands of believers. They knew that the blood of animals, birds, would not take away their sins. They knew that it would take the Son of God becoming a man. So all those years they were waiting and the announcement came. I'm going down to earth. I'm going to be born of a virgin. And then they had to wait over 30 years before the Day of Atonement. You know, our Day of Atonement was Mount Calvary, Good Friday. They waited another 30 years before Jesus would would die on the cross. Yes, he had to leave heaven, but in a sense he didn't leave heaven because he's the Son of God and he's omnipresent. But there is a sense he did. He said, I came down. We understand the difference, don't we? So, Abel, who was the first one that went to heaven, Noah, Abraham, Moses, Ruth, Esther, David, Isaiah, Jonah, they were awaiting the Day of Atonement and it finally came. You remember, they were used to altars where they burned the animals with fire. So was there no fire at Mount Calvary? Oh, there was fire, wasn't there? Not of a literal kind. But when Jesus said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was on fire. 
He was being burned. He was being crucified. He was dying and suffering for our sins. Fire wasn't missing at Calvary on Good Friday. On Good Friday, He was thinking of us when He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He wasn't just thinking of the soldiers that were throwing dice for His robe. He was thinking of you and me. He was praying that that we would be forgiven, wasn't He? There was no suspense or anxiety in heaven. They believed that Jesus would be successful. But there certainly had to be excitement, wasn't there? I wonder if they were able to look over the balcony of heaven to see what was going on. And then Jesus died. And Joseph of Arimathea and was it Nicodemus carried his body to the tomb. And for those hours they awaited the resurrection day that Jesus had promised. But remember, as I said earlier, this, is, this was not the first time that they ever heard about the resurrection. The Bible tells us that Abraham offered was willing to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice. Hebrews tells us that he must have been wrestling during the night before he woke early to take his son to Mount Moriah to sacrifice him. And it tells us that what Abraham concluded was, well, if I'm going to slay my son at, 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 in obedience to God's Word, then God will raise him from the dead. Because God said that through my son that there would be many children, multitudes born. And if my son dies, then God's promise can't be fulfilled. Then He must raise him from the dead. Think about that. Abraham believed in the resurrection. God could raise the dead. We're told of a few resurrections in the Scriptures. Remember the one man who was laid down in a grave and he touched the bones of Elisha the prophet and he came alive. And, of course, Jonah was a picture prophecy. He was three days and three nights in the belly of that great fish. Whether or not he died is really irrelevant. He was as good as dead. The picture is there that he was underwater and, and the mariners thought he was dead. And he was as good as dead. And then he was vomited upon dry ground. And the Ninevites believed that that uh, Jonah had experienced a great picture of, of uh, something that they need to take heed to. He probably didn't smell all that good when he was walking through Nineveh. And then you have Psalm 22. David speaking, probably uh, exaggerating his own experience. God wouldn't forsake David. My God, why hast thou forsaken me? David penned those words, but those were the words of David's Lord, ultimately, of Jesus. God never forsakes you and me if we're His. But God forsook His Son. He had to. God cannot look upon sin. He could not have just swept sin under the rug and lowered the standards of His law to save sinners. 
It was not cruel for God to send His Son to die for you and me. It was justice. It was love. Jesus was not hanging on the on the the uh, railings of heaven. He wasn't reluctant to come. He was willing to come. He said yes. He agreed with the Father to take flesh and to die for you and me. But He would rise from the dead as we see the prophecies in Scriptures. Remember what God said to Noah or, or Moses at the burning bush? I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are dead. Oh no. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So their souls are in heaven. And then Jesus said that was a leverage to teach the resurrection. That the resurrection is true. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And our bodies are still part of us. And even though the bodies of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were in the graves, they wouldn't stay there. The day is going to come when their bodies will, will be resurrected, to be glorified bodies, to join their souls again. And they'll be the, the after fruits. Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits. But in Psalm 118, we're kind of given a cryptic prop, prophecy, a kind of a mystery in, in, that's veiled in certain words. So Psalm 118, verses 22 and following give us the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. Verse 22, the stone which the builders refused has become the headstone of the corner. That's quoted several times in the New Testament regarding the death of Jesus Christ. But verse 24, sorry, verse, uh, the end of verse 22, becoming the headstone of the corner is the resurrection. So you have the death and resurrection both in verse 22. And I'd like us to think about that truth today. That the resurrection was planned for a long time and it has come to pass. And we have the hope of the resurrection because of Jesus Christ. The stone which the builders rejected or refused, that had to be the prerequisite for the resurrection. There's no resurrection without death. Jesus had to die for him to be raised again, right? But the fact is that his death was a sin, was, was, was murder, was, was due to man's sin. It was due to God's decree. But first of all, they murdered Jesus. And really, we were the cause of Jesus' death. We can't just say, well, they killed Christ. He died for you and me. Our sins either had to be paid for by ourselves in God's prison or that Jesus would have to be punished in our place. So in a real sense, we were the cause of Jesus' death. Let's not forget that. It's easy to look at the soldiers and the Jews and to say how, how uh, vicious they were but we're the cause as well. We loved our sins until Jesus opened our eyes. But the death of Christ was essential. It wasn't a mere incidental thing either. He had to die for our sins. 
to take them away, but He also to live to give us a righteousness that would get us into heaven. So we needed both. We needed Christ's righteousness, His, His holy life to credit to our account, but he needed, we, we needed to have our sin debited to His account for Him to die. So you have the double, the double uh, imputation of Christ. So we, we uh, His robes for ours. He, he took our robe of unrighteousness, of filth, and wore it. He gave us His robe of righteousness. The Bible says He was refused. Notice that the stone which the builders refused. Jesus and the apostles said this. This was fulfilled when the Pharisees and the religious leaders rejected that Jesus was the Messiah. The word "refused" is pretty is pretty. Uh, graphic, isn't it? It it means they they, they knew that Jesus was different. They refused. In other words, they were offered something that that was logical. He's the Son of God. He never sinned. He was performing miracles. His words were gracious words. They had every evidence that He was the stone that should be placed in the corner of the building. They had every evidence that Jesus was the Messiah And they refused that evidence. They wanted a different kind of a Messiah. A Messiah that would rescue them from the Romans rather than to save them from their sins. But are we not the same in similar ways? We want want self-centered things rather than really what's needful for us to get right with God. For years, I just was a selfish, sinful human being Desiring not Christ, but desiring things that would pamper the flesh and justify my, my own religious activities. He is the stone. The Bible called God and called Christ our rock and our redeemer, our rock and our fortress. Christ was called the rock that followed His people. Yet Isaiah told us that he would be despised and rejected by people. Despised and rejected of men. How could it be that the Son of God become man would be despised and rejected? I remember hearing someone say, you know, Jesus can be despised and yet received, and yet it's still negative. Uh, There are people that include him among many all the other prophets. In a sense, they receive Him, but they add Him to all the other prophets. So they really reject Him as the only Savior. And then there are those that that reject Him, though admire Him. He can be admired and yet rejected, and He can be received and yet despised. But the Bible says we need to admire and receive Him. We need to see that He's the only Savior of souls. And that... The Lord Jesus indeed died for our sins. He had no sins of His own. So we see here the prerequisite for the resurrection was that He would be refused. He would die. But the vindication of the resurrection was His resurrection. He's become the headstone of the corner. Now, I'm not a builder and we have a builder here. But I think the, the, the stone is no longer really is it part of 
of the language of building today? I don't know. It would be the language of foundation, right? But is there a stone in the corner? And I've tried to think of, think through that, but the point is that there's a certain stone that they use to measure the rest of the foundation, I suppose. I, I, don't, I don't understand all the language, but it was a very important first piece of the, the house, of the building, of the foundation. And the Pharisees said, they, they rejected Jesus as the cornerstone. We want a different cornerstone, whether it be their works or whether a, a man-made fabricated Messiah. But God the Father said, no, bring him back. He is the stone. The Father vindicated Christ by raising him from the dead. God disagreed with the Pharisees. He said, no, he is the cornerstone. There's no other stone. In other words, Jesus came back to haunt them. You know, you've heard of people being rejected and all of a sudden they're kings. Remember Joseph, how he was rejected by his brothers and cast aside, left for dead? They thought he was dead. All of a sudden he's the prime minister in Egypt. Isn't that a picture of Christ? He was refused, even by his own brothers by the Jews and by the Gentiles. And like Joseph, he was brought back and lo and behold, he is the Messiah. He's the resurrected Savior. Can you imagine if the people that rejected Jesus, if they, the day of judgment when they stand before him and see the stone that they refused? But thank the Lord, there were many of those that refused him that got saved and admitted they were wrong. And that includes you and me, doesn't it? that our works can't save us, our religious uh, endeavors can't save us. It's Christ's work that saves us. Remember that verse that says, there's a way which seems right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. I thought of the reverse of that with this verse, that Jesus became the headstone of the corner. There's a way that seems wrong to a man, but the end thereof is the way of life. Right? They thought Jesus wasn't the Messiah, but... He is. And His resurrection is the way of eternal life. The stone rejected is the stone erected by God. Oh, that caused Jesus to have poise at the cross. Do you wonder why He could have such poise? Here He is, mocked and gory. They had beaten Him and tortured Him. and Probably all the skin on the front and the back was flayed like the animals. The crown of thorns and uh, the punches of the, of, the, of the soldiers. And he's there talking to people. There's no crying out vengeance. It's unfair. But just fulfilling righteousness. Father, forgive them. Think about it. That's the first statement. He's concerned about people, about them. I mean, would you be concerned about others if you were being tortured and and impaled to a tree, it would take a lot of grace, wouldn't it? And for him to talk to his mother and to John, he was caring for his mother right to the end. And the thief on the cross that had been cursing him just maybe an hour before, he turned to him and said, Today you will be with me in paradise. That's who Jesus is. How could he have so much poise when he was dying? He was he was being treated like a criminal. And everybody was saying he was a criminal. 
How could he be so calm and collected and poised? Well, Hebrews tells us it's because of the joy that he was anticipating because of his, 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 his experience. He knew that by dying, he would save a multitude of people. And, that, and he was doing the will of God. And that kept him concentrated on the fact that his death was not in vain. That he was not listening to the mocking and the, and the, the, the swearing and the, the laughing of people. Because he knew that this was the way to save sinners. And you and I can live like that if we're in Christ. No matter, you, know, you live for the Lord and you live holy lives, you're going to be persecuted. The Bible says all that live godly in Christ shall live, shall, shall uh, be, all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And so we shouldn't be bitter toward people. We need to be concerned that they get saved. And we have our sights set on the fact that we're serving the Lord and one day we're going to hear, we hope, well done, thou good and faithful servant. So like Jesus, we need to be poised and calm and not thrash and, and, and bite back at people that may hurt us. But to know that what we're experiencing in the will of God is a, is, is a cause for our sanctification. We look to Jesus, don't we? Just like Peter said, who suffered and, not, and did not thrash and, and did not... Uh, speak again he's become the headstone of the corner notice it says this is the Lord's doing thirdly who invented the resurrection that's what it's saying this is God's work he's the owner he's, he's the one that has a patent for the resurrection and no one else can repeat it you know people have a patent for things and people try to have you know the lower versions of, the, of whatever they invent Nobody else can have a second kind of resurrection, can they? There's only one. He threw out the, the, uh, the pattern, as it were. He has the title, Him alone, to the resurrection. No one can repeat the resurrection or copy it or improve upon it. God's resurrection is unique and it's, it's as good as it can be. That he raised Jesus. In other words, it's saying, I did it. God did it. And that's what you and I say. God did it. No one else could have done that. It's his doing. There are people that are trying to uh, preserve bodies because they think that one day they might have cures for cancer. They may even might be able to have some kind of invention that, that those people will come alive again. You know, frozen bodies. I know it's morbid, but... There are people that are mummified or frozen and in solutions, and they think that one day we're going to have a we're going to have a an invention to cause a resurrection to happen. It's not going to happen. It's the Lord's doing. You got to get saved to have a hope of the blessed resurrection. This is the Lord's doing. In other words, the psalmist said, "This is amazing. This is amazing." And no wonder why the women, when they left, the, we read together, they left the, the uh, tomb, it says, with fear and joy. I mean, have you ever had fear and joy in that combination? You're so excited about something, but it's really terrifying because of the truth of it. You know, someone that, I don't know, someone that barely made it uh, you know, out, out of surgery or somebody that had an accident that they should have all practical purposes died and you're there and you're just trembling but you're trembling with excitement 
And here the women are at the empty, you see the empty tomb, the stone rolled away, and they were going to, they were going to use the spices, thinking that they would keep, you know, the, 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 uh, uh, of, of the body from accelerating. But there was no body to embalm, as it were. There was no body for the spices to be used for. And when the angel told them, he's alive, he's risen, why do you seek the living from the dead? They ran and their hearts were pumping and they were so afraid in the sense, but with, a, with a fearful fear, if, with, with, a, with a joyful fear. Have you ever had that? Well, sometimes, don't you read this account and there is that combination of joy, but yet, wow, this is for real. And we're really going to rise from the dead. And it's kind of scary in a sense that, well, I'm going to rise from the dead. And then yet, it's so joyful to know that it will be permanent in nature. That it's not, this is not some mythological thing. This is not some, some uh, futile hope that we have. But it's a blessed hope. It's a real hope. And so we we find that we need to say this is the Lord's doing. That's what Thomas said, didn't he? Thomas doubted that Jesus was alive. He said, I want to see the wounds. And so Jesus didn't take very long when he came in that next Sunday and said, Peace be unto you, Thomas. <laughs> I don't know if it took 30 seconds for him to turn over to Thomas. But when he said to Thomas, Go ahead, come on over here. What did Thomas say? Basically, this is the Lord's doing. And it's marvelous in my eyes. My Lord and my God, this is for real. It struck him like the women that this is for real. And he admitted this is the Lord's doing. I don't know about you, but I would have been staring. Think about the other disciples in the background. I don't, I don't think I would have approached him. I think I would just, I'd have been staring at those wounds and just in amazement. I think I would have been afraid, and yet I think the fear would have hit me immediately, but the joy would have caught up. You know what I mean? Sometimes we just look at this as just history, and you know, we're so used to the, the truth of it, we don't feel the truth of it. Isaiah 28.16 says, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone. God says, I'm going to lay that they're going to refuse it. They're going to try to push it out of the way. I'm going to bring it back. And God had the last laugh, didn't He? And isn't it interesting that Jesus never appeared to any of the Pharisees after He rose from the dead? They didn't have the privilege. As far as we can tell, the only people that saw Jesus after He rose from the dead were saved people. I don't even think the soldiers that were guarding the tomb saw Jesus. They saw the angel. They were afraid of the angel. But he was... Interesting. You see the angel sitting on the rock saying, I did it. I rolled that stone away. I didn't need anybody to help me. And then he sits on the rock. It's kind of like David standing on Goliath. I did it. Nobody had to help me. God did it. And then you see that it says, and it is marvelous in our eyes. That's the power of the resurrection, the effect of it faith. It's, it's marvelous in our eyes. Who could have guessed that this could have happened? Paul said, why is it an incredible thing if God raises the dead? If He can create out of nothing and He can cause a universal flood and a, a fish to swallow a man He can tell about it. 
Why do we think that He can't raise people from the dead? In other words, this was faith-making, this resurrection. The Bible says faith comes by hearing. And when we hear about the resurrection, we read about it and we listen to it, it's miraculous to us. It's, it's faith-catching. It's faith-making. Oh, it's terrifying, yes. But it's not repulsive and offensive like it is to some. Some people don't want to hear about the resurrection because it's, it's scary. It's a scary truth, but it also is a, it's a truth that makes us feel accountable to God. If there's a real God and He caused a real resurrection, then where does that leave me? But that should be something that should attract us, not repulse us. Because we want our sins removed. We don't want to have to face our sins. We don't want to just block out the truth of, of, of the resurrection. And there are people that stay away from the church, even on Easter. You know, you have there, there are people that come to church on Christmas and Easter, and we're thankful they come even then, and we trust the Lord will save them if they're lost. But there are people that stay away even Easter Sunday and, and Christmas services. They're afraid. What are they afraid of? Because the very thing we need is to, is to stand before God and to plead the blood of Christ and to have our sins forgiven. As, the, as John says, we come to the light that our darkness might be shattered. We don't want to stay in the dark. We don't want to die still in the dark. We want to come to the light and, and we know we're all dark. We know our sins are real. We, but we want to come to the light that God would expose our sins so that we might confess them and they might be removed and we might get right with God. And that's a work of the Spirit, isn't it? This is the day that the Lord hath made. That's the memorial of the resurrection. You know, there are people that are looking for shrouds and dried blood from the cross and footprints and all these kinds of relics but the real relic of the resurrection is the Lord's day. I know we can use that expression every day generally. This is the day that the Lord hath made. But in the prophecy, the day that it's talking about is the day of the resurrection. The Lord's day. And that's what it's called in Revelation 1 verse 10. John was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. The Lord's day is the relic of the resurrection. It's the memento, if you will. It's the, it's the reminder I'm not looking for the nails that are rusted now that were in Jesus' wrists. We're not looking for any sort of DNA or an, even an empty tomb. We're not even sure that the tomb that they show us in Jerusalem is the, is the very tomb. That's not the important thing. But the Lord left us a memento every seven days. The church gathers together in public worship to remember the resurrection of Christ. So even though, even though this is called Easter Sunday, every Sunday is Easter Sunday. Because every Sunday is the first day of the week that Jesus rose from the dead. And so Jesus, isn't He do? You know, we all have birthdays once a year, but isn't Jesus worthy of a, of a special day every week, not just every year? So every Sunday is the day that we remember Jesus rose from the dead. That's the memorial of the resurrection. This is the day that the Lord hath made, the Word hath made. He's the one that established it. And so we gather together every Sunday to remember that Christ raised from, was raised from the dead. And we will rejoice and be glad in it. Now there's the application of the resurrection. Are we, are, 
when the first day of the week comes, are we, are we excited, enthusiastic? Do we have joy that we're going to gather together to praise the Lord for His goodness and His mercy? To be together with believers and worship the Lord? To give Him a whole day? He's given us six days. He says, I want, I want one day. And we should have great joy when we anticipate this day every week. And the psalmist said, we will rejoice and be glad in it. Spurgeon said, we'll do a little bit better. We do rejoice, not we will. We are rejoicing and are glad to meet together. And so they, they ask, what's the it there? We will rejoice and be glad in it. What's it? The resurrection or the day? The answer is yes. It's the day of the resurrection. We rejoice in even a little memento. You think of mementos that maybe a loved one that passed away has left you. Aren't they precious to you? It might be a picture. This is my grandfather's ring. I can't clean it any better than it. It's dull. It's, but it was his ring. And I remember Jigger, his name was, Philip Bennett. He taught me to drive. He took me to breakfast every week. And he just was a very loving man. And, you know, this is a memento of him. And I treasure it. But we have other mementos, right? Maybe it's a stone. Maybe it's... I don't know, what, whatever your mementos are of your, lost, of your loved ones that have passed. You cherish it. Whenever you see it, you think about that loved one. Well, every time the Lord's day comes, do we not cherish it? It's a memento. It's a remembrance that Jesus is raised from the dead. And the fact that Jesus is raised can cause us to say what it says in verse 25. Save now, I beseech thee. You know what that save now is? It's the word Hosanna. Hosanna, which means save now. In other words, because Christ raised, was raised from the dead, He did take care of our sins. The people do get saved. And therefore, now we can pray, save now, Lord. If He didn't rise from the dead, there's no reason to cry Hosanna or pray Hosanna. But because He was raised from the dead, there is hope that people will get saved when they repent. They will have the hope of heaven. And we cry out to the Lord because of the resurrection of Christ, Hosanna! Save now! The power of the resurrection is the Lord can save the chiefest of sinners. He can save old people and young people. He can save people who are in the gutter and people that are in high places. He can save sin. And you read in the Bible, He saves rich and poor. He saves, he saves all nations. All, you look at, that's why we're taking the gospel to all the nations of the world. The bodily resurrection of Christ underscores the fact that we can be regenerated. Raising the body is even a lesser work than raising the soul. The regeneration of the soul is a great work, being born again of the Spirit of God. So the resurrection is a leverage to pray for salvation, the salvation of sinners. And First Peter one three says, "Being born again by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead." In other words, when we preach the resurrection, we're preaching a saving message to lost souls. And so we find this: this the resurrection was prophecy. Now it's history. We're looking back upon it, aren't we? All those other saints were looking forward to it. I was thinking today about Abel. He was lonely at first. But he had the Lord. 
He had the angels, the first one in heaven. But all the saints, as they were gathering together until the days of Jesus, were just awaiting that day. But now you and I are looking back now at over 2,000 years. So many of us have been converted since then and until the Lord Jesus comes again many more. But we're looking back upon it. But remember, let's not think it's just a historical event. It's a present reality. It says, now is Christ raised from the dead in 1 Corinthians. It doesn't say now was. It's a truth. He was raised. But the Bible teaches it's a gospel truth, not just a historical uh, event to put in a history book. It's a living reality. He is raised from the dead. In other words, it's a present powerful event, a powerful truth. It's, an, it's not a mere past event. It's a living reality, a, a powerful message, a saving truth that when we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we'll be saved. So that means when we believe on His death, we'll be saved. When we believe on His, His life, we'll be saved. When we believe on His resurrection, we'll be saved. We believe on the Lord Jesus. And we are saved and we are also kept saved forever and ever by the power of His resurrection. He is risen, brother and sister. He is risen indeed. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Amen. Lord, thank You for Your death and Your resurrection. Thank You that You are seated at the right hand of God in heaven. And There are many saints that are able to see You today as they go home and leave this scene and see the wounds, the trophies that You carried with You. Lord, we pray that we would live in this present reality. So often, Lord, it seems like a dream to us. We've read about it and heard about it so often that we often don't feel the power of the truths. But Lord, please help us not to be numb. Quicken us, Lord that these truths would be fresh, powerful um, uh, truths that, that affect our lives, that make us think and pray and praise and witness and live for You. Oh Lord, these are truths to live by and to resist temptation by and to die by. So Lord, help us to live in the reality of the resurrection day after day after day. Bless you for the privilege of worship. I trust, Lord, you've been honored as we have sought to, to praise you and love you and thank you. I pray that you would continue to be blessed in this memorial, this memento of your resurrection, the Lord's day. We pray this, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.